This is episode 36 of Ripe Good Scholar, Shakespeare in Colonial America. Yeah, so we had, you know, I mean, not that long after his death, he was showing up in school curriculums. Good for you, Will. Look at you. Look at, look at him. I know. I'm so proud of him. This is Scott Newstock, director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment at Rhodes College and author of How to Think Like Shakespeare, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. William Shakespeare is not just a staple of British culture. His works are an important staple of American culture as well. This evolution was not a simple one or one that was straightforward. There were obstacles to overcome, and despite the questionable odds, Shakespeare became ingrained in American culture. Today, we are going to look at the early days of the American colonies, and when Shakespeare made his journey across the Atlantic. It's an interesting look into the history of America and the role Shakespeare played in the early days of our country. For this episode, I read Shakespeare and the Making of America by Kevin J. Hayes, along with several other resources. If you want to check out that book and so much more, head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP36. Now, let's head to Colonial America. Time to talk about Shakespeare in America. Ooh, yeah. USA. USA. Now, when did Shakespeare arrive in America? The person? Uh, y- yes. Never. And that's all, folks. Uh, <laughs> short podcast is... His writings. Oh, right, 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 right. So we're going to be talking about basically from the first English colonies to just before the American Revolution, early 1700s, I'd say. Okay. The very earliest colonies, we don't have much record of Shakespeare or you know Shakespeare's works being present. Is this because so many of them were either a bunch of get-rich-quick schemers or Puritans? I think it's mostly the Puritans part, but also the leisurely reading time was not exactly a top priority for the first colonists. Yeah, survival must have been pretty high up there. So, so we'll start with the Puritans, because that's always fun. It is, isn't it? They're just they're just laugh a minute. Most of the early colonists were it's hard for me to say religious minorities, but I guess if we're gonna talk strictly like Christianity, then yes, they were a minority of Christians in England. At the start of the colonies, they were kind of coming to set up their own little utopias that were totally based on their religion. That's why we had states founded with the Quakers. One good way to think of the kind of division of religions in the colonies is New England was largely Puritan. Further south, we start getting into Quakers and straight just Anglicans. And, of course, Maryland, the Catholic colony. 
gotta have the one. Although, again, that's still, when we're talking about England, that still fits in with kind of the religious minorities setting out to make their own. Yeah, that's true. But I think understanding the division of Puritans further north, Quakers and Anglicans further south, will become important later as we see actual physical theaters start to come into play. But for now, we're in the very early colonies. A lot of Puritans, not fans of the theater. If you want to understand the Puritan uh, mindset, just remember the word puritanical, which means barrel of fun, correct? Yes. The Puritans were a subset of the Anglican church that basically wanted stricter codes of conduct. They wanted to get rid of all those nasty Catholic influences on the Anglican faith. They were firm believers that all of the rules should come directly from the Bible. Oh no. And your path to heaven was perfect obedience. Perfect obedience to the Bible. Yeah. Now, there are parts of the Bible that don't match the other parts of the Bible, correct? Probably. We don't talk about those. Ah. As most of us know at this point, as we talked about in the Restoration episode, they were not fans of the theater. Yeah. It promoted sin and debauchery and, worst of all, cross-dressing. Because of that, they were a big force behind the theaters getting shut down in England. So, unsurprisingly, in Puritan New England, there weren't many theaters. Ah. But we also have to keep in mind that in the very early days of the colony, there wasn't a lot of free time. Yeah, I imagine building a civilization from nothing tended to take a lot of work. Not that they didn't have a lot of assistance from the already extant civilizations here, but still, just the effort of building, uh, learning to farm, and you know, learning to recreate a lot of the amenities that they must have been used to living in England at the time. Basically, we have to imagine they arrived to a wilderness with basically only the supplies they needed to survive. They had to make shelter and, as you said, learn farming in order to survive winter. Going back to the morals of the Puritans, it was hard work or prayer, you know, and you're not going to burn up candles reading unless it's the Bible. There wasn't a lot of free time and not only that, but what you had to be choosy about what you brought over. One of the primary books I read for um, this episode was Shakespeare and the Making of America by Kevin J. Hayes. And he brought up an interesting possibility, which is that if they did bring any Shakespeare over, it was like little quarto versions. It was little tiny individual plays that were small, easily packed, and quickly read. So it wasn't exactly something that would have survived in the records. So we have to keep that in mind that just because he doesn't appear in the records for many years doesn't mean that he was completely absent. Now we're going to move forward into where the colonies are established. The colony, I mean, we're even starting to see what's going to become cities at this point. People, you know, there's, there's governors of every what will be state. There's, you know, newspapers. There's... Um, you know, pr printing presses. I mean, if there's newspapers, there's printing presses, but there's more leisure time. And there's also this emerging of 
I guess for lack of a better term, a ruling class. I think that's a good term. And this was also the same time period where in England we saw the restoration happen, happening, which was the time of rationalism and the enlightenment and scientific thinking. So suddenly reading and, and building libraries and having your own personal wealth of knowledge was valuable. Okay, so it went from a luxury that people could not afford or at least could not afford very much of to something that was in vogue and desirable. Um, I don't know how much for like the average person. It's hard to say because when we're, a lot of times when we're talking about, you know, the people of the Enlightenment, I mean, you know, Sir Isaac Newton obviously comes up, but most of the early libraries that were cataloged were either at colleges or were like the governors. Yeah. But I think that when you see a, the rise of a even just a class that has the leisure time, there was a certain amount of status in intellectual pursuits. And this is around the time you start seeing uh, Shakespeare being treated as intellectual. Yeah, so this is where we start seeing like colonial libraries getting cataloged. This is where we see, you know, Yale and what would be Harvard, like making libraries that contain books just for reading, not for studying law or medicine but just to enjoy so we had you know colleges building their libraries so anybody who's going to those colleges has access to those so we see where Shakespeare starts showing up in these libraries one of the most interesting catalogs he appeared in at least that I thought was interesting was so Benjamin Franklin's brother ran the New England Current now in Hayes's book he made it sound like there was a period of time where Benjamin Franklin must have been running the newspaper because his brother was like either overseas or I want to say he might have been in jail. Both sound likely. So Benjamin Franklin, you know, a young teenage, maybe early 20s, Benjamin Franklin is running this newspaper and he's trying to figure out what to print. At some point, he starts printing a catalog of the books in the newspaper office. And Shakespeare was in there. Oh. This is when you start seeing libraries getting cataloged. Personal libraries, newspaper libraries, college libraries. Now we have a record. Now we see Shakespeare start showing up. But what we have to remember is that this was the time period of the post-restoration. This is when people were adapting Shakespeare. Is it worth pointing out that this is when we're starting to see these folios and quartos cataloged? They were probably there for considerable time before it became common to catalog your libraries. Yes and no. Like, we're not talking, like, crazy late into the colonies here, though. We start seeing some records. Even the late 1600s, we're seeing it show up. And what we're seeing is, okay, they probably bought that a year or two prior to it showing up in the record. You know, we oh, know okay. when they were printed. Even in these libraries, not a lot of, like, quarto versions would have been cataloged. Okay. There would be some individual plays, but not a lot. Usually, people were cataloging their collections. It might not be a folio collection, but it'll be a couple plays. A quarto is kind of a 
throwaway. They're not meant to like stand the test of time. They're not like hardbound books that are easy to make survive. I, I think like my modern pulp novels are kind kind of similar. The I I tend to like them because I like how they age with me, but oh boy do they age. And like I said, what we're seeing is they're some of the most popular collections of Shakespeare plays were these post-restoration collections. Some of the plays appear to be more straightforward, and I think you see a couple different like collections of plays and, and even full collections of his plays that were straight versions, but they were being reprinted by other people prior to that with the dialogue changed and the ending changed, and so... Right, because the, the post-restoration was when they were like, hmm... We could make this better. And they would add dialogue and things like that. So in the colonies, as these books are getting shipped over and read, and the people doing a lot of the writing at the time are traveling between England and back, maybe attending the theater, you'll see them kind of misquote Shakespeare. Like, they'll get the quote almost right. And sometimes that's because they were actually quoting a restoration version. Right, whereas we... Have pretty widely disseminated uh, original versions. They were going off of the, the the version that was based off of the version where some guy was like, uh, this ending could use some work. Yeah, pretty much. And so this is where, you know, we again see this lack of reverence compared to what we have today. Today, we very much have the school of thought of people who uh, treat Shakespeare as inviolate, whereas as the restoration era theaters were trying to get english theater back up and going they were cutting and adding to make it work for the time interestingly this is when we start to see shakespeare show up in some of the school books at the time like you know your kind of grammar books that would have been taught in the elementary school where you had these little just grammar lesson books. That's neat, because that's only about 200 years after he was in his grammar school reading mostly treatises from Rome and Greece. Yeah, so we had, you know, I mean, not that long after his death, he was showing up in school curriculums. Good for you, Will. Look at you. Look at, look at him. I know. I'm so proud of him. Uh, when did the theaters start getting uh, built? It took a while for the first permanent theaters to show up. But even some of the amateur productions that we had going on in New York were doing like Romeo and Juliet and stuff. Like they were doing Shakespeare. But late 1600s, early 1700s, you see theaters start to pop up. The first one is in Virginia. Oh, okay. Which is notable because Virginia is one of the southern colonies. One of the more Anglican ones. Yes. So we have less of a Puritan influence at this point. What you had was you had them building these permanent theaters to just try, to try to start having these acting troops show up. And the first acting troops that would come in were coming over from England. They were coming to tour America because it was more of a sense of trying to recreate the theater that was in England here in America. And that makes sense. Not only because for even the next hundred years or so, uh, English trends would make their way to the Americas, but a lot of these people thought of themselves as Englishmen and saw England as the source of culture, whereas now we think of them as Americans. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important point is that 
that we're, we have to keep in mind this is pre-revolution. They're still English. And so you had these acting chairs come over and want to tour and they're trying to establish this enterprise in America. And so it starts in Virginia, but they want to take it to other cities. In some places, I think that they set up in buildings that were intended for other things, but there were a lot of cities that they built their first permanent theaters so that they could have these acting troops come and visit and perform. And of course they would do other plays too, but they did do quite a lot of Shakespeare. I'm not sure why, like Shakespeare was so super popular in the colonies. Oh, so was he more popular than more prestigious playwrights for the day? I mean, it sound it sounded like it. It sounded like he like a lot of his plays were being performed. A large proportion of the plays being done were Shakespeare. I'm, I mean, honestly, that makes sense. You didn't have many centers of the arts in colonial America, and you really didn't have too many modern English playwrights up to that point who were still being performed. It it kind of goes back again to what we were talking about in the restoration episode of there, like you were saying, there weren't that many new playwrights because an entire generation of playwrights was lost when the theaters closed. I just find it curious that like Shakespeare came over in such a wave. Although I have to try to think of my timeline here. Actually, I might have to scratch that because thinking through the timeline post restoration he wasn't that popular but then we start building up to like this like jubilee celebration that happened i want to say like around 100 years after he died that is really what catapulted shakespeare to top of the crop so I if see. we're looking at that happening around the same time that theaters are starting to show up in america it makes more sense okay so you had this big celebration with a lot of shakespeare plays getting put on to commemorate it Mm -hmm. and that kind of blew up his popularity this is when we start to see the first people trying to look for biographical information on shakespeare unfortunately this is when we have a lot of people faking a bunch of stuff now one kind of little tidbit that I found very interesting about the early Shakespeare in the theater is that while it seemed people did enjoy the comedies, a lot of times it was the tragedies that were performed. The style of production at the time was to have a main title that was like the long tragedy and then a short piece afterwards that was comedic with like singing and dancing or like a little vignette of a comedy. Okay, so they do, like, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, followed soon after by a vignette of Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, something like that. Or it'd be like a song and dance. So basically, uh, the comedies were kind of an afterthought and didn't really get the billing. Yeah, yeah, top billing was the tragedy. But yeah, so then we started seeing acting troops coming over and doing productions in different towns and towns having permanent theaters. And we see this business start to bloom. And what I find interesting, Shakespeare has still retained such a hold in American culture, despite being very, very, very British. That is interesting. And it could just go back to so many early American intellectuals and people who drove the culture being fans. I think it also kind of speaks to his fundamental capacity to write 
very human emotions. And I do definitely want to continue to look into kind of Shakespeare's globalization because there's Sh- Shakespeare's performed all over the world, translated, adapted, and and they really embrace it into the culture. But I guess part of what I find interesting about the lasting impact of Shakespeare in America is because he comes up just again and again and again. So that's why I think it's important to look at the journey that Shakespeare made into America and into our culture because he is going to keep showing up again and we're going to keep talking about him in the context of America. Yeah, it's inescapable. Heck, as recently as the 90s, there were a dozen Shakespeare movies that came out right after the other. Well, I mean, think about during the 2016 election. There was a big hullabaloo over the Julius Caesar production done at Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah, there's going to be more resurgences of Shakespeare. There's going to be more news revolving around Shakespeare productions because it is an indelible aspect of our culture. You know, and there's a Shakespeare company in every city. It it almost feels like he came here and stayed here against all odds. We were founded by a lot of Puritans. Not all Puritans, but a lot of Puritans. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't help your odds, man. And then, from the little bit I've read so far into the American Revolution and Shakespeare, there was this kind of grappling with, do we keep him? Really? Is, Is this too British for us? Well, yeah, I mean, they were trying to kind of throw off everything British. You know, we'll go into more depth about that in the future. I don't know. It's just interesting to me that he has permeated so deeply in our culture as well. No, I I, I agree with everything you're saying. It's this early cultural strain that has just stuck with us. I think it also brings into light an important conversation that is currently happening in the Shakespeare community and I think will continue to happen for years that we don't have time to get into too deeply today which is Shakespeare's role in colonization that I think will have to be an episode all on its own yeah I think that's a really good point because uh, when you use Shakespeare as an anchor point for your culture and your culture is an expanding colonialist nation you know, everything that anchors your culture is getting wrapped up into those ideas. I did talk about this somewhat during my guest appearance on The Good, the Bard, and the Ugly. It was about the Lion King. I don't know exactly how we got into Shakespeare and colonialization, but I wasn't mad about it. So anyway, if you want kind of a preview on my thoughts on that discussion, head on over to The Good, the Bard, and the Ugly, the Lion King episode. Also listen to a lot of their episodes because they're really good. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP36 for even more information on Shakespeare and the American colonies. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. 
As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>